Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Matthew Johnson. Matthew is a PhD candidate in Germanic Studies at the University of Chicago. His dissertation concerns the relationship between German and Yiddish language literature in the 20th century. He is currently supported by the Posen Society of Fellows and by a translation fellowship from the Yiddish Book Center, for which he is translating the late poetry of Moshe Lieb Halpern into English. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. Um, for those listeners, uh, we, are, we are talking remotely in a snowstorm from various different points, so I'm glad you could join me. And I've been really eager to talk with you about your recent discovery of the Moshe Lieb Lab, correct? Moisha Lab Halpern. Unfinished poem. Um, Mindel Cohen, who uh, runs the Translation Fellowship and is our academic director at the Yiddish Book Center, shared your article from AJS and it captured my attention. Um, so tell me, um, before we talk about the discovery, no spoiler alert yet, um, could you talk to me about what you what drew you to Halpern's writing and maybe what a little bit about the focus of your dissertation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you again. Um, I'm really happy to be here to talk about um, Halpern in particular. Um, so I, I think I first became interested in Halpern when I first started learning Yiddish um, several years ago at YIVO. And one of the poems um, that we read in, one, uh, in a course taught by Mark Kaplan was Memento Mori, um, which just really was um, and remains one of, you know, kind of a favorite poem of mine. And so I think from that point on, I always had an interest in Halpern. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I started researching Halpern more intensively a couple of years ago because I'm, I was and am hoping to write about him in my dissertation. And so my dissertation is a study of the relationship between German and Yiddish literature in the 20th century. So I'm really interested, um, especially in writers who use both languages, both German and Yiddish in their work. And so one of my chapters focuses on a um, kind of interesting phenomenon in the 20th century, um, a group of Yiddish uh, of writers who grew up in Yiddish speaking homes, mostly from Galicia, um, who were native speakers of Yiddish, but in their first uh, publications or in their first attempts to write poetry in manuscript form, wrote in German. So they were often in their, you know, in their teens or their early 20s, um, and they would either write fully in German or they would start experimenting in German. So this includes people like Malka Lee. Um, it also includes Moishe Leib Halpern. Um, even Itzik Manger experimented a bit with, um, with German in his youth. Um, so I was interested in that particular phenomenon. Um, so I went to YIVO where um, Halpern's papers are held, hoping to actually find more information about this very particular part of Halpern's uh, poetry. Um, and unfortunately, at least to my knowledge, um, German, uh, Halpern's German language poetry is not held at YIVO. Um, it's a very kind of difficult <laughs> task to define these early poems. Um, so if anybody happens to know more about that, I'd be eager to know. Um, but YIVO has a lot of the papers of like, for instance, has a wonderfully interesting notebook 
by Malka Lee, um, written in German. So there's like, there's an interesting kind of body of German language materials at Ivo. Um, but uh, Halpern's early work is not there. Um, but that was kind of my first entrance um, into kind of a uh, kind of more intensive engagement with Halpern's archive and mm -hmm. also the kind of basis for the short article in AGS. So um, I'm going to get a little bit of background before we, we skip to the punchline here um, and talk a little bit about more about what you discovered. In, in the article that you wrote for um, AJS, you mentioned that Halpern lived for nine years in Vienna where he apprenticed as a sign painter, studied at the university and became involved in the famed literary circle, um, the Findecircle uh, Austria. Um, uh, this near decade was a formidable time in his life, but we still know relatively little about it. And I was kind of taken by this. I've been reading a lot of memoirs um, in translation, pretty much as many as I can get my hands on. And I'm fascinated by the fact that so many, and I think this might be correct to say, you know, almost all Yiddish writers held down day jobs and wrote at night. And I'm curious if you have thoughts about this or feel that aspects of this figure into his work. Yeah, I think this is a really important point. Um, and it absolutely um, mattered for his life and for his work, um, for his poetry. Um, so yeah, we, we know very, relatively little about Halpern's time in Vienna. Um, he grew up in Eastern Galicia. Um, his family was actually not, you know, he it was a relatively um, well-to-do family. Um, he did not grow up in extreme poverty, but his adult life was really marked by the experience of immigration. Um, and then when he ended up in New York in 1908, um, it was a really difficult time and it remained a difficult time essentially for his entire life. Um, and as you mentioned, like so many other writers, um, he did not have a kind of support system or there was no patronage system, at least none that could supply one with a decent income. And so most poets at this time in the early 20th century, Yiddish language poets um, had day jobs. Um, Halpern is a little bit of an interesting exception. Um, Halpern very famously refused or most or often refused um, to do menial tasks or to do hard, you know, kind of hard labor. Um, and um, it's not always clear why he refused. One, it seems to be a commitment to poetry, a commitment to art um, and literature. And he wanted to devote his time to art and literature. Um, but I think he also just saw among his colleagues, among fellow poets, that this was a really backbreaking way of living. You know, they would work all day in either a sweatshop or some kind of factory. Some of them had, you know, some writers had small stores like a, um, a dry cleaner, um, but they would work for hours and hours and then they would write at night. Um, and their health just deteriorated. And a lot of, a lot of writers died very young. Um, and Halpern kind of refused this. And that's a really interesting just kind of fact of his biography. Um, Ruth Weiss, uh, the, scholar, the Yiddish scholar, 
um, in her book, A Little Love in Big Manhattan, really uh, goes into some of this uh, experience, uh, the kind of uh, <laughs> the, the real intense poverty of Moishe Leib Halpern and other members of this group of young poets, of uh, Yiddish poets called the Yunga, including Mani Leib and others. Um, and because Halpern refused to do these kinds, you know, these other jobs, um, he had really no money for a lot of his life. And he experienced large, you know, he experienced weeks, months of homelessness. Um, his health suffered dramatically. Um, and this made a huge difference to his writing. So, um... Now I'm going to ask you to tell me about, um, as it's referenced by scholars and archivists, et cetera, the Halpern Collection, box number RG464 that you found your way to at Evo. And what did you discover? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually think the, the Halpern archive testifies to the material conditions of Yiddish writers that you um, alluded to earlier. Um, so, Halpern's archive, like many archives of writers, includes manuscripts of his poetry. So handwritten manuscripts of poems, of short essays, autobiographical notes um, in handwriting on paper, um, sometimes with, sometimes without revisions. Um, it also includes uh, some correspondence and it includes clippings. Um, so clippings are, you know, right, a lot of Yiddish writers publish primarily in the press. Um, and so when Halpern would publish something in a newspaper or journal, um, like many writers or the families of writers, he would cut out um, the publication called the clipping um, and preserve the clipping in his private archive. And these papers ended up at Evo. Um, and I think what, um, why this is also important in terms of like, the material conditions of his life is because um, these periodical clippings were also the, sometimes the only source of his income. So in a very kind of literal and material sense, these clippings supported his life, supported his family. Um, and if, you know, when he wasn't able to publish in a periodical and receive an honorarium or some kind of stipend, um, he often had no income. So I think there's a direct connection between the two. I find marginalia and notes absolutely fascinating into a writer's thoughts. And you, you shared this bit and I thought it was so interesting. I wanna speak with you about it. You write on the left-hand side of the page, we can see additional handwritten lines, which are also crossed out in part and the occasional quote, okay, in Latin letters. That's just, what a great little bit. And tell me what your takeaway is with the okay. Yeah, so I, so yeah, so I was really, so as I said, you know, I went to this archive for a very particular, you know, I was looking for a very particular kind of document. And, um, but what I found was a lot of other really fascinating documents. And these clippings really caught my eye because like so many archives, um, literary archives, the manuscripts, the handwritten documents include revisions, right? Mm -hmm. A poet will draft a poem or a writer will draft a chapter of a novel 
and then sit down with the manuscript and revise it. Sometimes it's handwritten, sometimes it's with a typewriter, nowadays with the computer. Um, that's in itself an extremely fascinating, <laughs> um, you know, those are in themselves very interesting materials. Um, what struck me about the Halpern archive is it included those kinds of manuscripts, but it also included clippings like this one that I read about in, um, in the AGS piece, um, where he does that kind of revision, uh, revision work to the clipping itself. So the document that you're talking about, it's, it's, I also share your interest in Mardinalia, um, and it's a clipping um, in three parts of a poem called Harlequin, which he published in 1924 in the um, communist periodical Freiheit, uh, meaning freedom, um, which was also one of the, um, or at least a brief period, one of the only periodicals to give him a steady income. So it's an important <laughs> um, periodical for his life and work. Um, and he has this clipping, an already published poem, um, which usually you would think of as a completed poem that's already you know, successfully published. And then he sits down with it, cuts it up into three sections, and then revises it. So sometimes he'll like, he'll cross out lines, um, he'll add words, um, he'll make notes, he'll add a whole stanza in Yiddish, um, but then occasionally he'll also cross something out and then think about it again and say, nah, okay, that's okay, and write in Latin letters, okay. And it's a really just visually striking document, and there's quite a few of these in his collection and um, yeah, they're just really fascinating documents to sit down with and study because they're just so rich and um, full of information. There's also something I think so wonderful about seeing the actual hand of a writer in the notes. And, and for our listeners, um, since this is audio only, um, at the end of this, um, I'm going to ask you to share where we can um, direct everybody to to see the article, if that works for you. Yeah, because sure. you have some you have some just wonderful photos which really illustrate this. So just to to finish up, I guess I'd want to know what your takeaway is in terms of understanding both Halpern and maybe more broadly all of this in terms of what it reveals in process. And I think. I ask you that both as a translator and somebody who is um, interested in these writers uh, and also the whole sort of Yiddish German, I think you know where I'm going with this question. So I'd love to know what your thoughts are having found your way to this. Yeah, so um, I mean, it, besides being just interesting materials, I think the, the clippings in Halpern's archive um, are really telling and really reveal a lot about his work and about what we still don't know about his work. I mean, Halpern is one of the central figures in Yiddish modernism, especially in the United States. And so much of his work just remains to be explored. Um, and um, actually his initial readers were very much aware of his editing process um, and this really uh, rich account of his life by uh, the critic, Eliezer Greenberg, he writes about Halpern's editing practices and how he, could, he was never finished with the poem. Um, he writes about Der Gassenpoiker, the street drummer, and how there are multiple iterations of it. Um, and even after publication, how um, Halpern was never satisfied. And this has a couple interesting dimensions. One, it just shows kind of the, you know, 
intense creativity of Halpern as a writer, but it also shows his you know, the the carefulness and his um, attentiveness to language. That he really, you know, these were important poems that he was really pouring a lot of his, you know, he was really attending to um, in very intense ways. Um, and so I think what you see with these clippings is how even after he would publish a poem in a periodical, it wasn't a completed poem. It wasn't a completed thing. He would continue to really intensively reread, rework and rewrite these things long after the publication. And so some of these revisions end up in posthumous collections, like the two volumes called Moishe Leib Halpern, which collects his posthumous work. Um, but a lot of them are only available as clippings in the archive. Um, but I think in addition to showing the kind of poetic intensity of Halpern as a writer, um, they also show the material constraints that you were already alluding to, that he was writing this poem Harlequin for the, the periodical Freiheit. He had an income, but that income was attached to him producing material on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. Um, so the incompletion of the poetry is also just a kind of result of having to publish in order to be able to feed yourself, in order to be able to have an apartment. Um, and I think it kind of shows how that aspect of these writers' lives, that the poverty um, and the, dif the material difficulty was profoundly connected with the way in which they wrote and the way in which they published um, and also in what they left behind in their archives. Um, and so I think what you see is that when you're translating a poem like I'm trying to do now, the poem that you might find in the journal or in the periodical or the poem that you might find in the edited volume um, in Yiddish is not necessarily the same poem <laughs> in each different edition. And often there are major revisions that Halpern made that can only be discerned in his archive. And I think it just shows that, you know, there's actually so much more to explore with Halpern. Um, the textual corpus is much larger than maybe it seems to be upon first glance. That has to be uh, an incredible part of the process of taking on the work of literary translation of somebody to find their voice is in an of itself in mind a really difficult thing or amendable when done well. Um, but also then to consider his input after he writes it in terms of the evolving editing reworking of it, it doesn't that it sounds like that comes into play for you as well. It absolutely does. I mean, I, it's, a, it's a tricky task because it, it means that the translator also becomes a kind of editor, right? Um, there are a couple of different options, all of which I'm playing with, um, with other colleagues at the Yiddish Book Center, um, which has been an incredibly supportive and helpful environment to work on this material in. Um, but one approach would be a kind of a genetic approach, meaning to present all of the different iterations of the Yiddish text, um, and then to produce translations of each different iteration. Um, unfortunately with Yiddish, that there's often not a lot of support for that kind of um, textual scholarship. Um, you see this only with some of the most canonical writers like Emily Dickinson. Um, but, 
it's still, I think, a worthy goal in some ideal world. Um, but I think even as a, as a translator, if I'm just working on one poem and I'm aiming to produce one translation of the poem Harlequin, for instance, um, I, I rely primarily upon an edition published in this posthumous volume called Moishe Leib Halperin, um, which is based on, also includes a lot of his manuscript poems, um, but is collecting works that he published in periodicals that were not included in book form during his life. Um, but I think a lot of the revisions that Halperin makes in this kind of uh, fascinating clipping should play a role in the translation. And so I think some of, I think often it's a little subtle, but it's quite subtle. Um, it has to do with like a specific word choice. Um, some of the correction addition, or, uh, revisions that Halpern makes in the clippings um, help clarify certain lines. Um, but others also have to do, as you said, with his voice, um, with the sonic landscape of the poem, with the rhythm of the poem, with the way it sounds, its tone. And those are much harder um, to capture in English. Um, but also, I think having multiple iterations of the poem in Yiddish makes the translator's job in some ways more difficult. But in other ways, you see how um, you can get like multiple perspectives on the poem based on these different editions. And I think you actually have more insight into how Halpern was thinking about the poem um, and how he was approaching writing in general. And I think all of that information actually helps the translator. I, I'm always amazed by all the work that the translation fellows, you know, coming out of the Yiddish Book Center, endeavor to, to do, um, and translators in general, because, well, well, specifically with Yiddish, these writers are not here for you to speak with. And it's a, to me, it's a very intimate and respectful relationship that a translator has with a writer. So you can't have these conversations. And yet, in listening to you talk about this work um, that you've discovered, it feels as though while, while he can't reply to you directly, in some ways they, were, they can not as well, but take the place of that conversation between you, his translator and him as the writer. Absolutely. I think it's a really beautiful and moving and really moving way to put it. Cause I think I, I, and I think I felt that a, quite a bit actually at, at Yuvo, you know, pre-COVID, right? Um, mm -hmm. When, you know, when you sit down with his clippings, you, you really get insight into his process. Um, and it is a kind of conversation with the writer, um, a conversation that can be, that, that's richer because you have different iterations of the writer's voice. Well, I want to thank you for joining me and thank you for your work. It's, it's really wonderful, Matthew, and it's a real insight for those of us who aren't doing this work, both into the writer, the process, and the importance of the work that you're doing and others are doing to really surface these many aspects of the culture beyond the written word, which I think, it, I think you would hopefully agree is the case here, that it just gives us more insight into process, world, and um, and the individual. Absolutely. So would thank you, you so much. Yeah, um, thank you. Would you mind before we um, turn off the, the radio, the radio, as it were, um, can you share how people can find their way to the article? 
Yeah, sure. Is it, so it's is it public facing? Yeah, it's okay. public facing. It's part of what's um, the journal AGS Perspectives, um, which you can find on the Association for Jewish Studies website. Um, it's part of the newest issue of AGS Perspectives called the Unfinished Issue. And there's also many other wonderful articles about very lots of different interesting topics. Well, continue your great work. I can't read. wait to read the results of all of this and, um, and to see where you go from here. So thanks again and uh, stay well and safe. Thank you very much. Thanks. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon. Thank you.